The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, it's really nice to be with everybody this morning. I'm um, giving this talk from New Jersey, where my mother-in-law lives. Wynn and I are here helping to take care of uh, Wynn's mother. I'll be leaving again tomorrow back to Minneapolis. And the title of the talk discussion this morning is on setting good in motion. And um, it's such a powerful counterweight when things are difficult, when things are complex. There's this ordinary, in a way, unavoidable stress response. A lot of you have heard this. And... Uh, you know, we tend to freeze when things are overwhelming. We tend to get angry and frustrated and strike out. So fight and flight. We also tend to, I mean, there are other sort of responses, including the response to, uh, this is a newer one, you know, uh, to run away. So we have flight and we have freeze and we have fight. But there's also those follow as a, a fourth sort of stress response where we're like looking for somebody to tell me what to do or looking towards someone who seems to know what they're talking about, pretending at least to know what they're talking about. And we gravitate as a way to deal with the stress, the confusion, the uncertainty, the exposure in our lives. And then we get this teaching that I've been bringing up these last few weeks on karma, that intentional actions, including actions of thought, actions of speech, as well as those actions out in the world, they matter. And that chant we did, it's really about the ownership of action. And I've been also mentioning off and on how easily misunderstood the Buddhist teachings on karma because it can seem that, you know, when we hear the teachings on karma, that somehow I own, like the fruit of my actions are, is my privilege. I have rights to my health, I have rights to my power, I have rights to my location in culture, the relative privilege, especially me personally as a white male, you know, and a, an educated white male. Um, a healthy, able-bodied white male. There's a lot of power and privilege just in that. And we can use the Buddhist teachings on karma to, in a sense, um, say that, oh, I see what the Buddha is saying, is I have this because I deserve it. But really, the teaching on karma isn't that. It's how right now I'm relating to my relative privilege or how I'm relating to my discomfort, or how I'm relating to the irritation I feel about this person, or how I'm relating to society, or how I'm relating to this and that, that that matters, that that plants seeds. Because there are many, 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 many causes and conditions that make things the way that they are. It's all natural, but it's quite complex. 
So to somehow construct an, a personal idea of ownership, like I deserve the bad stuff that's happening to me, or I deserve the good stuff that's happening to me, that is not Buddhism. That, or in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teachings, that would be considered not helpful, unwise, unskillful, to be projecting self on these circumstances, right? So karma is really a way, it, it really speaks, it's illuminating this moment-to-moment dynamic, this actual, real dynamic of being a human being, and how, as I mentioned the title of the talk, how to set good in motion. So given that we have this dynamic existence, right, how do we set something good in motion? How do we set well-being for myself and others? How do we set in motion healing for myself and others? It's not a question of like, do we deserve this moment of being a human being? We have this moment. It's already here. We have this body and mind. We have this life, this existence. And it's quite dynamic. And the Buddha illuminates, you know, with the teachings that the relevant thing about this dynamic of being human is that it matters how I'm relating. Intention, motivation, the quality of my heart matters. And I can, in terms of how I'm relating, I can set in motion more harm for myself and others or I can set in motion healing. And that that um, pointing out that instruction is really the counterweight towards pessimism and helplessness and giving up. But it also helps us with this sense of, you know, mastery or meritocracy or competence where I should be able to control things. Like if I just got my act together, I should really be able to make things the way that I want them to be. Because karma, the teaching on karma, it it both um, invites this full and whole-hearted engagement, but it also helps us understand the limitations. Like we have very much a right, like it's skillful for us to see that it matters how I'm relating right now. But it also helps us understand that like if bad stuff is happening to me, to interpret that as some personal failure, or I must have done something bad or I'm doing something bad, is to over-interpret what the Buddha is saying. And it's nice, you know, in the myths or legends from the time of the Buddha that this is made really clear. Like one of the Buddha's chief disciples, you know, fully awakened person, you know, as the stories go, Moggallana was this person's name, the second chief disciple. So there's Sariputta and then Moggallana. And evidently, in the in the tradition, you know, Moggallana had a terrible, terrible death. Um, somehow, I forget if they were robbers or what, but just terribly beaten, and then. They are lying there, totally beaten up by these bad folks, not wanting to die so that they have the terrible <laughs> karma. Again, I'm not, 
I'm not going to own this story. So he kept himself alive with his you know, powerful mind and intention out of compassion for the folks that beat him up. And this happened several times until he realized there was no way out and allowed the dying process to happen. So, you know, this is a pretty, like, objectively speaking, ordinarily speaking, this is a pretty miserable way to die, to be beaten up several times and to be just lying there, probably in a lot of pain, physical pain, and letting the dying process take its, you know, take its way. So it's it's really useful, though, to have it as a story because we might otherwise think that if I really got my act together like Moggallana, you know, and had a teacher like the Buddha and really did my practice well and, and uprooted greed, anger, and delusion from my heart, I'd have one of those peaceful deaths, you know, where I'm in full samadhi, my lotus pose sitting up, my mind in a beautiful state of universal loving-kindness, and only then, you know, when my mind was totally absorbed and love in all directions, would the body cease to function and the dying process would unfold. And then who knows what happens next. But, you know, that's kind of the romantic version or, you know, in more mundane sense, oh, I just want to die in my sleep, right? And I don't want to really be there when it happens. And that's, you know, in ordinary terms, that's often considered a good death when there's not a lot of violence or a lot of pain or even a lot of consciousness. But there are many, many, many things in motion that might determine our particular cause of death. And, you know, we have this very deep habit of projecting self on everything. We think like when the weather's bad, it somehow is personal or if I get cancer, it's somehow personal, or if I'm wealthy, or if I have success, or, oh, I deserve it. But that's not the teaching of karma, that's ignorance. That's imputing self-view on everything. That's really the very definition in the Buddhist teachings of ignorance, is projecting or imputing a self-view on what is actually an impersonal and complex interdependent unfolding. So again then, the karma that is really a powerful teaching, but it's a teaching for the present moment dynamic. But the, our mind wants to have some meaning I can bank on, like turn it into an ideology or even a religion, you know, okay, this is what's true and I'm going to hold to it. But it's really, karma is really a way to help illuminate the present moment, which is an unfolding dynamic, and to get more and more intimate so that the heart can let go of what can be let go of. And what are we letting go of? We're only letting go, we're only renouncing the way the mind relates that sets emotion suffering for myself and others. That's really important to hear. Nobody's taking away our ice cream. Nobody's taking away our privilege. Nobody's going to take away our health. Those things will come and go according to this complex and wild, you know, 
force of causality, causes and conditions. But it isn't a moral thing when, you know, we happen to be a place where there's a forest fire or a place where there's a recession or there's a place living in a place where there's a lot of economic, you know, vi- you know viability and people can earn a living relatively easily. Right? These things that are in motion are expressing innumerable causes and conditions. And the interesting thing about the teachings on karma is to see, to kind of illuminate this very particular window. Okay, this is this dance is playing itself out right now in this moment. How can I show up right now in this moment in a way where I'm planting seeds of release, seeds of happiness, seeds of well-being, no one, and, and not taking it away from anyone. Because to the degree we understand the potency of our intention, like how I'm relating, how I'm sort of, in a sense, choosing to take responsibility for this wild dynamic, this wild dance of my life, I realize Everybody else is in the same boat. And that's really the birth of kindness, this goodwill, realizing that there's so much emotion and all of that, most of what's emotion is, in a sense, not in our control. But there is something, there is a way to participate, which is to illuminate this present moment, moment by moment dynamic of karma, like how the intentional way I'm showing up and understanding and relating and responding leaves an imprint in my heart and then in the wider sense leaves an imprint or impression on the collective world. We're shaping the world moment by moment just in the same way we're shaping our heart moment by moment. We're contributing or we're in a sense stealing. like getting in the way of our happiness and the happiness of others. And so because we sense that with practice, we really want to start showing up. Okay, this matters. And that's why we value like the, a lot of times people misunderstand the importance of putting aside 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour every day to train the mind to be vibrantly clear, stable, and continuously present. But it's because we want to do this dance, our wild interactions with each other, and earning our living, and dealing with power struggles, and trying to make the world a more just place. It really, it matters how we're relating. It matters what we're in denial of and not paying attention to. All of that matters. So there's really no way we can sense the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our habits unless we have cultivated some stability of awareness. This is what really helps. Um, Wynne Fricke, my partner and co-founder of Common Ground, one of our Dharma teachers at the center, we were talking this morning. We've been off and on talking generally about meritocracy and uh, one of the op-ed writers in the New York Times, Ross, I'm not sure how he pronounced his last name, begins with a D. Anyway, um, 
he wrote an article about white fragility and meritocracy. And uh, yeah, it's a, it was, I thought it was an interesting article for sure. But But there's generally this sense of achievement you know, it's part of our culture. People might say it's like part of whiteness because our culture is dominated by what people call whiteness, you know, this European and uh, this sort of culture of domination. And it's not, you know, we don't say that. Like I'm always, you know, feel like I have to explain myself when I use a word like whiteness or a phrase like white supremacy. It's not about shaming ourselves, myself as a white person, Although that may be my response when I hear that word or that phrase. But really helping to illuminate something that maybe I'm not seeing so well. right? And then one of the things we want to see about our cultural conditioning is like how it's related, like because it gets internalized. What we get from our parents, what we get from our culture, you know, it just becomes part of the way our psychology works and, and perceives and thinks and views things. It really gets ossified as our character. And then if it doesn't if we don't find a way, a provocative way usually, to illuminate it, we're kind of destined just to live it out. And there isn't somebody immune from whiteness, you know, so we might use that phrase, but it's not like recent immigrants or people um that who have been marginalized like black people. Everybody gets infected or contaminated by our culture. I mean, in different ways, dependent, but we're all affected. We all have this incentive to illuminate it and name it and see how it's working here in my heart. And so one of these things uh, that's getting mentioned more and more and I find really valuable is to even look at something that goes mostly unquestioned around meritocracy. Some belief that the way culture, the way society and the economy and other systems in our culture should operate is that we should assess people who are particularly skilled and they should be given the resources and the privilege of running and having power, right? So that how we distribute responsibility and power should somehow be based on an assessment of who has the skills to carry that out. And that sounds kind of reasonable, and it is on some levels, it does make sense, you know, that you want people who know what they're doing to be doing surgery on you. You don't want it to be like a random thing where you randomly select somebody, you know, from the town to do your heart surgery, you know, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But there's some shadows to this um, these ideas of meritocracy and competence. And it relates, I think, too, to how um, motivation works and how we understand karma, like intention. Because as long as we think that happiness comes from achievement and mastery and success, then you see, we're in a world where everybody else is going to be thinking that same way. So with whatever good fortune or privilege that they have, they're going to be rallying whatever resources they have to achieve, to accomplish, to compete, to be better than you and me and others, right? And then that's what we're doing. 
And where does that lead, right, to this sort of cult of competence, cult of competition? And again, I'm not saying that there's an obvious um, alternative, but I do feel it's really important as people who are interested in uncovering the deeper roots of suffering and injustice, and also uncovering the deeper roots of freedom and justice and release and love, right? That we do this work at looking how our hearts have been infected. Because there's really no way we're going to set good in motion, plant the seeds for greater justice in our world and greater ease and love in our hearts without illuminating what makes us tick. <laughs> you know, and, and generally what we often see is like we're all kind of desperate for the recognition and the juice that we get from achievement and accomplishment and attainment and winning at competition, being seen, being recognized, having power. And then when we lose out in that rat race, then we want to give up on it. And then we tend, like our achievement orientation then gets oriented around knocking down the achievement, you know, like belittling or, you know, doubting or hating the people who are having success, wanting to get out. And the Buddha talks about this when he talks about the three kinds of craving, like craving for a nice experience, often just to distract herself from the pain in her life, like, I want a funny TV show, or I want more ice cream, or, you know, whatever it might be. And the craving to become somebody, this is that, you know, meritocracy, achievement, rat race. And then the third kind of craving is craving to be done with it all. I'm tired of chasing sense pleasures. There's very few things as unpleasant as looking for an interesting TV show or a movie, having already for so many days looked for an entertaining TV show or a movie, you know. And pretty sure you're not going to find something, you know, every once in a while, the entertainment industry throws us a bone and there's a relatively well-written, entertaining, not-so-unwholesome movie or TV show. But how often and how long does that last, one? And second, how many frustrating moments of searching and hoping do, is required to stumble upon one every once in a long while? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm painting, being a little bit funny in, in how I'm painting this picture, but I think most of you probably get the quiet desperation not so far beneath a lot of our sense pursuits. And so that's how the Buddha describes the kind of how hunger of craving works. Hunger for sense experience that's pleasant, which sets up this often unacknowledged fear of pain, unpleasant experience, the hunger for achievement, and the hunger to be done with all of that hunger. Even that hunger to be done with all that hungering is as stressful as hungering to be on the achievement 
the rat race or the hunger to find another sense pleasure that's going to distract me from how stressful it is to need another interesting sense experience. So this is this is how we're kind of trapped in life. And then what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to honestly acknowledge because this this is how we start getting real. And we do this, as the Buddha says very clearly, we do this in terms of analyzing in real time with awareness the external world, the outer world, as well as analyzing in this mindful way, this with the sensitivity of our heart, this internal world. Right? So we're observing these forces of craving, craving for sense pleasure, craving for achievement, getting to the top of the heap, craving to give up, to not, you know, like some kind of wanting to get out, wanting to tear it down, not tear it down in a creative, productive way. I mean, because, you know, that that's just part of any sort of engagement where, you know, when you're you're inspired to make things better, there's going to be part of that will be the act of destruction of letting something die or helping something die so something new can be reborn. What I'm talking about, this craving for non-becoming, as it's translated in the Buddhist tradition, this craving for non-becoming is really thinking that here I am with a life, with a mind and a body, but not wanting to be alive with a mind and body, not wanting to really own the karma of being here. But the, here I am. <laughs> so you see, it's a real disconnect, not acknowledging the reality. I do have a sensitive heart. I do have a body, as however it might function, right? And as long as this body and mind are working, the kind of yes to my life is the is what leads to toward in the direction of well-being, not hating my embodiment or not giving up on my embodiment, but acknowledging I have this embodiment. may not be the embodiment I want, the body I want, the life I want, the location I want, but it is the life that I have. One way I think about this is um, uh, just I think it's a powerful reflection for us. I bring this up at some frequency. You know, if we were to run into a sincere younger adult and who really turned to us as a mentor, as somebody they sense has been paying attention in life, and they asked us, you know, hey, (laughs) what do you do with this thing called life? You know, what am I supposed to do? What actually matters? What actually leads in the direction that's helpful for me and helpful for others? How do I actually authentically set good in motion? You know, what would we say to that person? Even, you know, presume now you have some time to be reflective. And the last thing you want to do is some, you know, put out some platitude or some new agey thing you've read in a book, but you haven't really 
contemplated to see if it's actually true in your experience. But in terms of our actual lived experience, what helps set good in motion? And this is this distillation. It really is, you know, the first part of wisdom is knowing that my life matters. There's something that can be done with this existence that's better than giving up, better than just pursuing one, however feeble I might be at it, pursuing some pleasant experience or avoiding unpleasant, and better than trying to get to the top of the heap and becoming somebody at the expense of somebody else, which is always how it works in this merit meritocratical system that we have. And it's not that achievement is bad. It's like choosing not to achieve is just achievement by your own sort of standard. Like, I'm too cool to want to, you know, get through medical school, or I'm too cool to want to have to earn a lot of money. Well, that's your heap that you've gotten to the top of. You're one of those cool people that doesn't need to be rich. How cool is that? You know, and then within your circle, and you may be your only person in your circle, but then you get your status that you give yourself for having achieved what you think matters. So this, you know, this way of becoming and non-becoming and endlessly thinking that some sense experience is going to make it, make a difference in the end, is just a way of really learning our lesson in life. How can we set good real healing, real justice, real well-being, emotion for ourselves and for others. And don't feel like you have to put an answer to that question, because it's more about living the question. Well, let me see, because I got my heart, I have this sensitive heart, I have my life, my moment-by-moment-by-moment moment existence, so let me just see, because setting good in motion, should we should be able to directly, immediately sense what's being set in motion, because it's getting set in motion here, in a sense that the this sensitive heart can sense it. My well-being, the well-being of those around me. Just like, does anybody have any doubt that when I set in motion a lot of internal pain, emotional pain, psychological conflict, moral conflict, my own heart and the world around me. Does anybody claim that I'm not going to be sensitive or we're not sensitive to the harm that we set in motion at times? Sure we are. And we feel, you know, if we're willing to be somewhat sensitive, if I've been really unskillful, I'll feel it. I'll feel it in my body. I'll feel it in my sensitive heart. I'll notice how my mind's been affected. I might sense it in the people around me, like they don't want to. They don't want to be with me. They don't trust me as much. Right, that they're causing me harm as a way of dealing with their pain that I cause them. So, if we can sense being unskillful, we can also sense being skillful. And this is, you know, the whole point of saying this is it. It really. Uh, should be inspiring to us that we're not just helpless that it really matters 
And it doesn't mean that our world will immediately turn around in terms of good fortune or the weather or the wealth or people loving me. Because a lot of what's moving in our lives has causes that we're not going to be affecting. Right? And the way the Buddha talks about this is with a, a really powerful simile. I think if you search for the simile of the salt crystal, you might get the discourse, the sutta, where the Buddha is sharing this powerful simile. But what he's saying, it's um, this image that if you take a big block of salt, you know, a big salt crystal, and you put it in a little bit of water, like a pint of water, that pint of water is going to be really, really salty. You're not really useful in terms of being able to drink it. But if you have Lake Superior, and you put that same salt crystal on Lake Superior, you're not going to notice the saltiness. And it's the same way in terms of understanding other aspects of causes and conditions, like bad weather, or people beating us up, or other terrible or beautiful things that might happen to us. If we're like the vastness of Lake Superior, those unavoidable positive and so-called negative experiences, the heart will remain alive and vibrant and spacious even when difficult experience shows up, even when beautiful like or successful experience shows up. It doesn't shake, doesn't disturb the heart. The heart isn't confused by success or pleasantness, and it isn't confused by pain and failure. And that's really the, that's the karmic fruit we're attempting to set in motion. You can go ahead as long as anybody wants to and try to set in motion well, you know, the success of wealth or the success of being praised or loved or the success of health or, you know, these ordinary things we tend to strive for. No one will stop us. That's what most of the world is doing. And there's nothing wrong, and I continue to do that. We all continue to do that. It's just a question of understanding the limitations of those efforts to set all that in motion. So there's... a. Uh, what else we'd like to set in motion is the vastness of the heart that isn't shaken. And there's a really powerful, I think, powerful example of this that I've read recently. Uh, Doug McGill, a teacher down in Rochester, sent me the transcription. A lot of you know um, Cornell West. He's one of our great uh, I guess, philosophers and public intellectuals, and pundits and professor. I think currently he's teaching at Harvard, maybe. He's an emeritus professor from Princeton, and I think he taught for a while at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, um, a long-time activist, African-American man. But he was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper from CNN after the uh, memorial service for George Floyd. And uh, just talking about how just the the pain of that, what that murder of George Floyd represented. 
And then, uh, in the, you know, Cornell West is a real religious person. He just uh, imbibes that sort of energy of, of love, I think, um, religious love or universal love. Um, and uh, he, he starts, you know, he goes on this beautiful little riff, starting about, you know, from this point of being broken by the murder of George Floyd, and then talking about how much love he saw at the memorial service. And then I'll just read a little bit of what he said. This is a grand gift to the world, right from the bowels of, Amer of the American empire that has enslaved Jim Crow, Jane Crow, lynched them, yet we're, we are still dishing out this love. White supremacy may make being black a crime, but we refuse to get down in the gutter. We're going to go down swinging like Ella Fitzgerald and Muhammad Ali in the name of love and justice. And uh, Anderson Cooper started to tear up and then he went on and said, we cry because we care, my brother. We are concerned. We cry because we aren't numb on the inside. We don't have a chillness of soul. And I think in Buddhist terms, that chillness of soul would be resorting to ways of being that in our heart we know don't work, like the endless pursuit of pleasant sense experience or the endless pursuit of getting to the top of the heap, trying to become, you know, whatever we're trying to become or the endless pursuit of trying to get out of this. We don't have that chillness of soul we cry because we connect. But then we must have a vision that includes all of us. We must have an analysis of power that's honest. So I really like this because I think it really aligns with the Dharma. Like we actually have to see things realistically, deeply, clearly, with great breath as they are. We have to see clearly. He goes on, he says, we always need to connect police power and and street crimes with White House power and Wall Street crimes. We need to honestly analyze power in terms of greed, especially at the top, and then the greed in us, the gangster in us, because we are all wrestling with this day to day, and that's why we need each other. Courage and fortitude are what's necessary. They are the backbone. And this is the patience, like, we don't like this moment-to-moment -moment analysis of power. That's, I mean, I think that's what we were talking about today in terms of understanding karma in the intimacy of the present moment. Okay, this is how it is. This is how the heart's relating. And this is what I sense is getting set in motion. I'm causing harm to myself and others. I'm setting emotion peace for myself and others. Right? this sort of um, courage and fortitude. And then the last statement here from Cornell West, we don't need lukewarm folk. We don't need summer soldiers. We need all season love warriors. <laughs> I love that. We need all season love warriors. And the power for that really comes out of the confidence of that kind of all season love warriors it really comes out of 
um, the confidence that arises in our heart when we see the way it is, when we see karma, like, oh, when I relate with this love, it's healing for myself and others. When I relate with hate, it's killing me and it's killing others. When I close my heart, there are consequences to me and others. When I let the heart open, however scary that is, even if it's just a little, it's in the direction of healing. And this creativity, you know, I'll just give an example of this. Um, I had this great conversation with James Perez, one of the early teachers at Spirit Rock and just one of the longtime Dharma teachers in our community, wonderful activist too, besides being a Dharma teacher. And uh, James, you know, was just doing this beautiful little conversation with me. I was really getting inspired about like how... Uh, Dharma is really an activist, can be, should be understood as an activist teaching. And he gave this example of Buddha Dasa, some of you know, is a famous Thai Buddhist monk, died maybe in the 90s, um, an important teacher of a lot of the elders in our Western tradition of uh, insight meditation, Vipassana tradition here in the West. And uh, when they were cutting down the trees, you know, you know, in Buddhism, the monks, they're supposed to sort of stand apart, like that's sort of the etiquette. But he would ordain trees. I mean, talk about a creative response to the cutting down of the forests. Because, you know, the, the lumber companies and the people cutting down the trees, they had a deep respect for the monks and nuns, well, mostly the monks, but patriarchy. Anyway, so he would... Put, you know, ordained the trees. I don't know if he like wrapped a robe around the trees or something like that. But basically, the local folks who were cutting the trees wouldn't touch them because they were sort of part of the sangha. You know, so he had these sort of creative ways of responding. And I think those creative ways of love and healing, they can be quite fierce and strong and clever, and but most importantly, functional and uh, like in the direction of healing. And I think that's what we really need is that creativity that comes from that clear seeing of what's getting set in motion in our hearts and then in the wider world. We really have to unpack this. So maybe find ways for this deeper healing in our hearts and in our world so nice to be with everybody tonight. Take care, everybody. Be well. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.